Do you think Drake marks the end of mainstream hip-hop as a viable artistic force? Are you annoyed that Green Day ushered in the era of corny, safe, teeny-bopper punk and effectively killed punk rock as an anti-establishment statement? Are you a serious music fan who loves the Beastie Boys and their incredible discography, yet are dismayed that their moronic joke of a debut album is the first one casual idiot fans point to? Are you sick of pretentious indie hipster scum who hail Paul as the best Britpop band, while you know that Jarvis Cocker's shtick was contrived, campy, and as inauthentic as it got? On this episode, the curmudgeons give you the 10 most definitively overrated albums of all time. Welcome everyone to the 20th edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. This is Christopher O'Connor coming to you from Houston, Texas. And with me, as always, is Arturo Andrade coming to you from Guangzhou, South Korea. Together, we host the podcast made just for you, the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a mainstream world that has turned your once-celebrated solace into a niche. Well, here on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we not only celebrate that niche, we live it in full color and at full force. And then, hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before along the way. Join our curmudgeonly community today. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, and all the other places where you find all the podcasts. Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at curmudgeonpod. And coming soon, you'll be able to become part of our own private Facebook group, where you can share thoughts, musings, and random excitement with fellow travelers along the curmudgeonly path to rock and roll righteousness. Now, how about that, Arturo? That sounds good. We need as many uh, curmudgeonly fans as possible. And we, we might have some uh, enemies as well, because today's episode, we are giving the, mo- the 10 most definitively overrated albums of all time. And we didn't just brainstorm and come up with this. We had a process. Yes. Which we, which we came through with these 10 definitive overrated albums related to some previous episodes that we did. We have, we have a system. There's a method to our madness. Yes. And, and, and boy, are we mad Uh, in, in, in every, in every sense of the word, we are, we are the mad scientists of the rock nerd podcast world. Uh, and so I guess up front before Arturo, uh, uh, describes this episode a little bit later, uh, we'll ask you, what do you think is the most overrated album of all time? Uh, we'd like to take a poll. Uh, so head over uh, to your Gmail and hit us up, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. What is your most overrated record uh, of all time? Uh, a bunch of you uh, will probably say something from Bruce Springsteen <laughs> or, you know, you might say like, like a prayer or, or who knows? Who knows? There's there's a few, uh, you know, Hotel California. I mean, come on. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, what, what, whatever you got, uh, bring it on. And now it's time to enter our parallel universe. Uh, longtime sufferers and or listeners of this podcast will know that 
every episode we cross over uh, into uh, the great uh, beyond and the second universe uh, over there in which rock and roll still uh, rules the roost still feels fills the stadiums uh, still is all over the radio and uh, ty seagal is as big as tom petty and uh the war on drugs is as big as you too it's an interesting world over here and we belong you and us we all belong and so uh this week uh not only are we in the parallel universe but arturo and i are in perfect harmony because we are vibing on the same record at the same time and so should you because welcome to the best young band in the world yes absolutely um i don't know about the best but they definitely have an argument to be the best young rock and roll band on the planet right now we're talking about the australian band amel and the sniffers and their brand new album came out a month or two months ago uh called comfort to me it is the follow-up to their amazing self-titled uh debut album uh from two years ago and uh this is a rarity in the curmudgeon rock report usually um you know uh chris you have your recommendation for a new album i have my recommendation for a new album but in the uh because this album is so good we are both going to recommend it at the same time and we both have our own takes on this wonderful brilliant record that definitely for sure is as of now and i don't i don't see anything else coming up being better the best rock and roll album of the year so far yeah um, yeah, abso- um, hand, yeah hands ab- down. absolutely absolutely uh yeah this this record uh it's uh 35 minutes of uh pure uh rock and roll blast away uh but it, it also is very very smart now ammo when they came on uh a lot of uh other uh, rock critics, other uh, rock enthusiasts, podcasters saw them as something of a uh, of a shtick uh, band. Uh, here you had the obnoxious young female singer uh, who was uh, singing in something of a comical oi, oi, oi kind of voice. Uh, yes, they are Australian and uh, basically singing about her uh, libido and about how uh much you can fuck off and <laughs> uh, you know other such other such topics well it turns out uh young women and young men do grow up uh and this band has grown up uh significantly and uh as it turns out amy taylor uh has uh has a soul and uh is a really she's more thoughtful and more romantic than uh, you would think uh, because here, you know, you've got those fat punk riffs and those really tightly uh, constructed uh, chug-along uh, uh, songs and uh, just real, uh, really strong uh, punk pop writing. Again, I would say that this album is more consistent. Uh, I would say that this album is more consistent than uh, than the, the debut, uh, the self-titled debut. Uh, that one I always said was like, okay, 25% of that record was the first song and the last song. And so clearly they were, uh, sandwiching, uh, the album with the singles. And here were the, uh, the songs that were most indicative of what we're capable of, what we're are at our best. 
And then they just kind of cram the middle of it with all these little silly and smart, but smart, but silly bangers, like a minute and a half, two minute uh, bangers here and there. Uh, this album consistently two and a half, three minutes, uh, well-constructed verse, chorus, verse. Uh, and, uh, you know, really you've got heady riffs and you've got surprisingly uh, ro- and sweetly romantic lyrics uh, in some spots and uh, some genuine feminism. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically what Emma and the sniffers when they came out, I mean, they, they, their, their thing was they were basically dirty, sleazy, scummy barroom rock combined with hardcore punk. Basically, yes. basically ACDC meets black flag. That was them when they, when they first came out. Um, yeah. and, th- and this new album still has that. It still has that. But uh, like I like I've you know like I said to you, Chris, before, uh, and I'll say it to all the listeners out there uh, for the first time, um, the specter of Kathleen Hanna hovers a lot over this record. Uh, not just in Absolutely. the lyric, not just in the lyrics. We hear more of a feminist bent. That um, they're a little smarter than before. They're more mature, but also in the music. Um, they've kind of, they've kind of gone uh, in some of the riffs and some of the rhythms and, uh, some of the, some of the more interesting instrumental passages, they're kind of, you can show hints of them getting away from like barroom, you know, trash punk and getting yeah. more, getting more into what, like, I guess you would call alternative rockish. Um, yes, without, I mean, with, I, with, I suppose without, without, without losing the heaviness, which is the, the, the good thing about it, because this album still fucking rocks. Yeah, um, it, it, it's still very heavy, but they're de- I think they're definitely getting away from the uh, the ACDC. Oi, oi, oi. Yeah, uh, we, we want to fight all night kind of aesthetic. And I think yeah. it's becoming it's becoming smarter. Uh, you know, I could see parallels. I mean, in, in some ways, you, it harkens back to some of the sort of more uh, uh tuneful or uh, smarter punk bands of the seventies. Yeah. It has that kind of just hard driving with a purpose. Right. It's not, it's not just bashing the fuck out. It's, uh, you know, calling these guys pub rock, I think is a real insult. It Uh, is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're not a pub. Well, punk rock. Yeah. But not pub PUB. No way. They're beyond, they're beyond that. Yeah. They're beyond that. They're certainly beyond that now. And, and again, so, you know, what I see on, on this record, uh, there's just some really great, uh, some really great, uh, pop songs and, uh, you know, the, the one that, uh, really, uh, does it the, uh, most for me, uh, is Hertz. Uh, this is the best song that I've heard all year and the best song I probably will hear all year. Uh, this is, uh, love in the backseat of a rental car. But she's talking but, about talk how much she loves nature and being outside of the city. <laughs> yeah, uh, in in the backseat of a of a rental car. But uh, but at the same time, but it's very sweet and it's actually uh, it's more about love and it's you know hey you know we're taking a trip out in the country you know uh, you know I see I'm seeing mosquitoes and you know take me to the beach and take me to the country uh, you know get me out there. Uh, I want this fresh air. I want all of this stuff. Get me away. But if you show me that you love me, put me in the back seat. And <laughs> it's just, it's a road trip in a rental car. Um, but it's not, it's not all the, yeah, hey, look, everybody, we're doing it in the back seat of a, of a Hertz. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, it's much smarter and much deeper than that. Yeah, it is. Um, and then that's one of the singles uh, from the album. Absolutely. Uh, another song where like the feminist slant comes in is a song called Knifey. It's not musically. It's not one of the better songs on the album. But uh, lyrically, it's really kind of a it's 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 a really resonant lyric. It's really about mm-hmm. her admitting her vulnerability. Yeah, I act like a tough rock and roll girl, you know, and I do all this shit on stage. But in the end, I'm physically a small statured person, and I'm not a muscular person. I'm kind of you know, I'm, I mean, I'm 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 a woman in a male dominated world, and yeah, I carry a knife with me. Because I'm walking down the harbor, I I love walking down in the streets late at night, but I'm afraid of being raped, <laughs> so I gotta carry this knife with me, and and that says yeah. something, and that, that that's kind of a that's kind of a poignant thing to say, you know, in, in yeah, a, in a rock in like a rock and roll song, particularly in the context of a rock and roll band that's all about bravado, you know, and, yeah. and here, she, here she is admit admitting admitting you know her her fear. Uh, admitting somewhat, uh, I, I think it takes courage to admit fear, so it's not really weakness, but it, but it's an admission of fear, and it's got a feminist slant as well, which is you know gives it more of a punch. Yeah, and I I see that same thing on the song Security uh, as well. I think that that that's one of the other singles, but yeah. it's it, but it's got a a little bit of a of a of a swing to it, and it's got a little bit of that uh, confessional uh, uh, bent uh, to it as well. It's uh, yeah. Like I said, this is this is a really great record. And again, you know, with, to me, the older I get, if yeah. your album is longer than forty-five minutes, I'm probably inclined to think it's not that great of an album. But <laughs> yeah. to, to me, the shorter and the tighter, the better. Yeah, uh, man. yeah. These days, and, and I guess that's always been sort of the case. Um, you know, look, there's not a whole lot of people that have a platform these days that can pull off an epic. Uh, yeah. Like we used to get like the 50 to 70 minute epics that we got in the 70s, 80s and 90s. And so I think, 30- there's, a re- I think there's a reason for that. It's because back then, you know, in the 90s, especially we had a seven, a CD allotted for 78 minutes of music. So a yeah. lot of artists and bands felt, well, I got to load up and put as much music as possible to justify the 1999 list price for the CD. Well, now yeah. that shit's obsolete now. So, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. But even back then, I mean, you had Weezer records that never went over like thirty minutes or thirty-five minutes, and you were still sending, you were still spending nineteen ninety-nine. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like I said, you know, obviously the perfect example is Metallica when they did Load. Yeah, that uh, a CD could contain seventy-nine minutes and fifty-nine seconds worth of music. Well, guess how long that record was? <laughs> Seventy-nine, eighty minutes. Yeah, and, yeah, and, 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 and half of it sucked. Yeah, at least half of it sucked. But anyway, we're talking about Amel and the Sniffers. So, you know, as a as a character, as an iconoclast, um, as a increasingly feminist icon, I think Amy Taylor uh, is a rock star to watch uh, in a world where there was any justice over. Obviously, over here in the parallel universe, you know, she is the star. Yeah, she, and, she 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 would be on the cover of Rolling Stone if this were in, in the parallel universe Rolling Stone. Yeah, no, yeah, she's the star over on over on this side of the line. Uh, just really charismatic, uh, uh, really great uh, sort of punk front woman. Uh, you know, like I said, even not not a bad voice in terms of if you have a punk if any like a tuneful punk scream. Yeah, she's got she's got the tuneful punk scream. 
Oh, totally. She's, she's got the attitude. She's got the swagger. Yeah. But she's got the lyrics and she's got the sensitivity. You know, sure. she's. Yeah. She, I mean, I, I mean, a lot of people are going to compare her to other female punk rock singers. You know what I compare her to? She's kind of like a kind of like the new Joe Strummer in a way. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. In a lot, in a lot of ways. Yeah. She's, she's just straightforward. Uh, don't give a fuck, you know, just, yeah. uh, just straight ahead and just doing her thing and, uh, has utter confidence in her convictions, but also like uh, Arturo said, the, uh, uh, I guess even the self-confidence to be vulnerable and to be open and, uh, to be honest, uh, yeah. in her songs. And, you know, props has to go to the band too. I think the band has gotten a lot more consistent. They have yeah. this, uh, there's a real, uh, there's a bottom to their stuff. Now it's not just chugging, but man, you know, it's just with, with the bass and the rhythm and, and all of that, they're just yeah. really, really solid. I mean, they've always had smart riffs yeah. going on and they, you know, this sort of, you know, angular, I usually don't use the word angular, but I think it, it counts here that you yeah. can call these angular riffs and there's yeah uh, yeah this is again this is not your standard bash out this is like very smart verse chorus verse but well thought out uh well-conceived riffs they obviously work pretty hard on their arrangements yeah. and there's a consistency uh to the sound here uh that makes this uh just great so on that note we will now leave the parallel universe and let us get going with this episode's uh, uh, concept. You heard it at the beginning of the broadcast. We are giving you the 10 most definitively overrated albums of all time. What else do you have to say about that, Arturo? Yeah, well, let me explain how we came about with this, okay? We didn't just randomly say, oh, I don't like this album, overrated, okay. No, we had a process. On our last episode... We each went through a list of eight albums that we love that the other doesn't, right? That was our last episode. Now, the genesis of this was a brainstorming session in which we each wrote down albums that we think are perennially overrated, ranging from albums we think flat out suck to albums that we like but don't think are worth the acclaim. So we each circled the albums on each other's list that we disagreed with. Okay, and that was the basis for last episode's I Love It, He Doesn't premise. The leftover albums that we didn't circle, that we each, that we all think are uh, overrated from both lists were the albums that we agreed on, that we agreed on in their, in the curmudgeonly viewpoint, their overrated nature. So we took the, le we took the leftovers of those lists, put them together, pruned it, edited it, Said, oh, okay, well, do you think this one's more overrated than this one? No, I think this one is less overrated, blah, blah, blah. So he went over, pruned it, uh, uh, edited some stuff out, threw a few more out, and organized it into a tidy list of the 10 most definitively overrated albums of all time given to you by the curmudgeons. And why are they definitively overrated? Because it's our podcast, goddammit. We know more than you. Well, yeah, no, maybe not. Yeah, no <laughs> shit. Yeah, yeah, no shit. And mm -hmm. and, and and so we're we're gonna drop knowledge. Yeah, uh, we're, we're gonna. Uh, this is this is an interesting list. Um, there may be some disagreement, especially among the ladies, when we get to the uh, top or uh, conversely the bottom. Yeah. Uh, of of this well, uh, yeah. but yeah, and again, you know, some some of this is sort of like low hanging fruit or fish in a barrel. Uh, some of it is contrarian. Uh, if 
you went to college in the mid nineties. Uh, there may be one or two of these that you remember getting wasted to uh, a few times or singing and weeping to at four in the morning. Well, I'm here to tell you that it wasn't as profound of an experience as you thought it was, dude. So, <laughs> yeah, so that's yeah. so we're so we're here to uh, dispel those myths. And uh, looking at this list, uh, it goes back to 1969. As far back as it goes. Yeah. Yes. And the most recent of these is from 2011. And so it's a far ranging list that proves that the overrated, over-celebrated, uh, bloated ass uh, pop record that uh, most people revere and guys like us are like, uh, no, uh, <laughs> that, that's been a uh, tradition for as long as uh, white boy rock and roll itself. The 1990s were the fourth golden age of rock. I'm stealing that term from Arturo because I wholeheartedly agree. It's a perfect way to describe the era. Why do we make that argument? Find out soon. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will be basing an entire series of episodes on the topic, from Lollapalooza, the good kind of shoegazing, and grunge, all the way through to EDM, Mook Rock, and Napster, we'll cover the spectrum of a beautiful, incredible span of time where everything changed, at first for the better, and ultimately perhaps for the much worse. What defined the 1990s for you? Let us know at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Here we go, folks, whether you like it or not, and whether you disagree or not, and many of you may disagree, but here we go. Chris and Arturo will give you the curmudgeonly list of the 10 most absolute, definitively overrated albums of all time because we, you know, and, and that's the bottom line because we said so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, Steve Austin, we tip our cap to you. Uh, and, and coincidentally, again, yeah. uh, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, we want to hear your overrated albums and reaction to these, uh, especially some of you may disagree with this one or be up in arms. Number 10 uh, on this list is Drake's Take Care from yeah. 2011. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Drake, uh, Dr Drake is interesting. So now Rolling Stone in its uh, most recent release uh late last year of the 500 greatest albums of all time listed take care from drake at number 95 Jesus. Uh, which proves or kind of gives weight to my thought that somebody over at rolling stone is sm smoking tainted crack or, or or they have a really good relationship with drake and their pr agent and his pr agent so they got to make sure they give them a nice little uh, 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 entry in the list. Now, true. Now, to be fair, I think that Drake has proven uh, very influential in the sense that uh, here is this for the two or three of you out there that don't know by now. Drake is, you know, one of the biggest pop stars in the world and has sold uh, a gazillion records over the last uh, uh, 13 years. Mr. Aubrey Graham from uh, Toronto, uh, Canada. Uh, did not grow up on the streets. He actually grew up in Degrassi uh, Junior yeah. High. Uh, he was a regular on that show for a little while when he was a teenager. And he took his uh, dramatic arts and his artistic sensibilities into hip hop. Sort of. Uh, Drake's shtick is 
a stream of consciousness, uh, self-conscious uh, dialectic with himself where he is the champagne poppy on the one end and he's an absolute mess who drunk dials ex-girlfriends uh, with uh, overwrought confessionals about all the stuff that uh, he did wrong. Uh, and he does it in this sort of in and out of singing and rapping and uh, sort of rapid fire uh, all over the place. It's got a rhyme scheme. I mean, he's not a bad rapper. Uh, I'll give him that. He's got some talent, but it's, you know, it's the in and out of auto-tune and... Uh, God, auto-tune. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, rapping, then singing, rapping, then singing, 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 or that sort of, uh, I think it was Kanye first with, uh, 808s and heartbreak and then Drake and a couple others around there that decided that even if you couldn't really sing, and even if you couldn't have a sense of melody, uh, you could give it a shot. And so it was almost like the, uh, it was, it was almost akin to like a blues singing, uh, without like, rhythm or uh, soul. Real melody or soul. Or soul. <laughs> yeah. And so it was just kind of this uh, scattering, like, ah, uh, you know, uh, uh, I loved her. Then I didn't uh, uh, all the way up here. Then, uh, then down here, you know, so it's, just, it's, it's just, yeah, no, no. Basically Drake marks, like I said, in my teaser at the beginning of this episode, I think maybe some of you curm uh, curmudgeon fans out there don't, but I think, uh, he does mark the end of mainstream hip hop as a viable artistic force. It's mainstream, it's popular, it sells a lot of records, but God, is it fucking shit. I mean, seriously, it's it, yeah, Kanye may have started with 808 Heartbreak, but Drake took that ball and ran with it for the next decade. Oh, and yeah, I, he, he yeah. ran with it. And I'll give, I'll give him this. He got a couple of decent uh, pop hits out of it with Rihanna, uh, you know, he did start it from the bottom, which is actually a very good song. And uh, Marvin's Room, uh, which is the most famous song from this record, that's the drunk dialing his girlfriend song, is actually OK. Uh, lyrically, uh, it's it, it's kind of a it's kind of a fascinating uh, concept, uh, but it's just it's painful, man. It's it's the same thing. And uh, various he, forms over and he, over he, and over again. Yeah, and, and, and on top of that, and on top of that, it's the music. It's the beginning. And Drake, even more than Kanye, because Kanye would, would started that, but he would go back to real hip hop later on. It was it was it was Drake who kind of instigated and paved the way for many other hip hop artists to go in the MME direction, as I call it, moody, mellow, ethereal, all the time. Yes. Moody, moody, mellow, ethereal. Like moody, no, moody, moody. Yep. Yeah, hip hop's supposed to have funk and soul. This does this has fake soul. He's trying to go for soulful, and he always sounds like shit. He always sounds fake, contrived, like the fucking you know, preppy that he really is. And there's no fucking funk. If there's no funk to your hip hop, you can't really move to it. What's what's the hell is what the hell's the point? You know, yeah. I mean, look, in a way, is some of it engaging? Yes, but it gets tiresome. Uh, okay. Yeah. Three or four songs where he's doing that shtick and, and, uh, embodying that persona. Okay, great. Uh, Rihanna hook once in a while. Yes. A, a Kendrick Lamar, uh, guest spot. Okay. But on and on and on and on. And it becomes, it's, it's basically like the world's wussiest onslaught. If you yeah. think about it, it just, yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's just Drake. It's like, dude, 
either get some therapy or, you know, get some hooks. And on that note, we do a complete 180. We go from the champagne poppy from Toronto to a bunch of smoked out uh, hippies uh, that uh, wanted to ride their wooden ships back in the (laughs) late 60s. Yes, they did. Probably off a waterfall with the (laughs) the way that they were all uh, living at the time. So who are we talking about, Arturo? We're talking about Crosby, Stills, and Nash and their debut album from 1969, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Now, here's the thing. How do, how do I start with these guys? Um, like when I was a, a teenager and like really getting into classic rock and all that stuff, and I would really listen to all the old stuff because, you know, a lot of the new stuff sucked at the time. This is before the alt-rock era kicked in. You know, I would listen to like rock radio and they would play, this is Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And you'd hear Sweet Judy, Blue Eyes. You'd hear Long <laughs> Time Gone. And yeah, the, 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 those are nice songs, but, you know, like... Uh, and like Robert Criscow always called Crosby, Stills, and Nash, you know, their their choir boy shtick, <laughs> which he never really was a fan of. So I would hear Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and I would hear, yeah, okay, it's, it's nice, but it's like kind of hippy-dippy shit, you know? It's okay, you know? I mean, the, the birds did way better hippie folk than these guys did, in my opinion. Oh, I, oh absolutely. You know, you know? By a mile. And then, and then I, I, I would still listen to the radio, and then you would hear, oh, here's a song by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And I think, wow, this is way better than Crosby, Stills, and Nash without Young. Yeah, it it it, it came comes to show that Neil Young gave this band their balls, and he, and he, and while Crosby, sorry, while Stills was an amazing acoustic guitar player, Young was rocked way harder, way better. Was a more original guitar player, a more original voice, and hey, lo and behold, way better songwriter than any of those three put together. Yeah, and, pretty much. Yeah. Although, well, St- Steve Stills was good. Steve Stills yeah. was a very good yeah. songwriter, and so, and technically was a be- better guitar player than Young. Although I would listen to Young ninety nine times out of a hundred over Stills. Yeah, Neil's way more inventive, had a way more original and influential guitar sound. Um, so yeah, it's a long way of saying Crosby, Stills, and Nash. This album, their their, their debut before Neil joined them, is heralded as a, cla- a classic rock classic of all time um deja vu is much better and mainly for the reason that neil young is there (laughs) um but yeah but this album in itself uh as a whole i don't think really holds up very well i mean the the big the radio hits from this song are the radio hits and they're okay but in general it's kind of lightweight hippy dippy laurel canyon folk that i think other artists like neil young joni mitchell Joni Mitchell okay. uh, did way better. So yeah, yeah, no, no, ab- ab- absolutely. Look, I mean, there's some individually pretty good songs. I mean, uh, my favorite song off this has always been Marrakesh Express. Uh, that's my and, least and- favorite. It's just a cheesy, corny cartoon song. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but that's why I like it. <laughs> well, that's that's kind of why I like it. Um, and uh, Wooden Ships is pretty good too. I mean, that's uh, that's Steve Stills at his best. Uh, oh, 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 a little raw, raw trivia. That's one of Trent Reznor's favorite songs. He loves yeah. this album. <laughs> oh, I know. And then, uh, well, but let's just put it this way. Uh, any any album that has Helplessly Hoping on it that still <laughs> makes a best of album? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here's the funny part about Deja Vu. Uh, I believe Neil only played on four songs on that record. Mm. Uh 
that so he didn't play on carry on. Uh, so I think even just by young, his association and (laughs) having his name on the group and his association with those recording sessions, Yeah. yeah, all of a sudden just lifted Steve stills into, you know, his, his best and and, and Crosby and Crosby for that matter. We're moving, moving, we're moving down the ladder, down the ladder. Speaking of which number eight, more hip hop, more shitty hip hop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, uh, I don't even know if you should call this hip hop. Uh, we're talking about the streets, original pirate material, which for about, uh, about eight months, nine months back in 2002, 2003 had a whole bunch of, uh, white boy critics on both sides of the ocean, uh, really excited. I never understood why. Um, was it EDM? Eh. Was it hip hop? Meh. It's a uh, fusion, well, man. It's a fusion. Yeah. Is it spoken word? Uh, maybe, but it's really badly spoken words. Uh, so uh, the streets. Uh, this was uh, a dude from England, and this was at the beginning of the grime. Uh, scene, which I guess uh, this guy was indicative of. And uh, a lot of it is just uh, sounds like a guy just drinking and being bored and doing these little rants that sound like this and then sound like this. And then here's another rhyme and another rhyme. I mean, it's not really a cadence. It's just sort of like it's it's a ramble. And it goes through and it keeps on rambling. Uh, I guess I get the the appeal that it was talking about the sort of the uh, the uh, income inequality uh, of Britain at the time. And it was talking about the the struggle for uh, uh, reptilians or rapscillians. Yeah. Uh, or, or reptilians uh, like this guy. And. I don't know. I, I just never heard it. It's it's skittery. It's basically unlistenable. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you'd agree with that. It's just. It's, yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, hate this record. I mean, look, at least Drake had some sort of sense of tunefulness. Yeah. Uh, you know, this guy is just like uh, it's almost like he was just doing his uh, ranting and uh skittering sort of uh musings uh in the studio unaccompanied while he was high or in the middle of a psychotic break and then somebody set music to it later yeah yeah i mean this album by the way the name of the album is original pirate material yes original pirate material it came it came out it came out in 2002 yes Um, needless to say a year later um, Dizzy Rascal, another British rapper, came out yes. with Boy in the Corner, his uh, Boy in the Corner, his, uh, his his debut, and did this shtick way way better with much better rapping skills, much more interesting lyrics, um, and way better and funkier electronic beats. And if you want to take it further, eleven years after this album came out, um, if you if you're doing the whole you know drunken white cockney british guy ranting and raving in rhyme about socioeconomic disparity and and political strife with like a funky beat behind him look no further than slayford mods who took yeah. this shit way better way more coherent way smarter 
and be- just better lyrics in general and better music in general too. And, and it's and it's just a guy with a laptop. Yeah, <laughs> who's doing it? You know. Yeah, I was gonna say. And uh, the streets, for what it's worth, uh, the guy's name is Mike Skinner. Uh, yeah. You know, I've been saying the guy, the guy, the guy, but Mike Skinner uh, for a while, for about a year there, he was like a hero to the enemy uh, set. Uh, he did not win the Mercury Prize. Uh, and so just look, there's this uh, history of the Mercury Prize of the more lauded records not winning. <laughs> yeah, not not winning the prize. But like you said, uh, Dizzy Rascal came out the next year and was an actual rapper. That yeah. had a, a really original shtick where he was basically like a dance hall toaster with a lisp, but, <laughs> but but with a very Cockney accent and but who could just ride a beat like a motherfucker. Right. Uh, that guy was good. Whereas yeah. where Skinner, look, I get it. He was kind of like it was monologia from British working class life. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, been like, done. It's been done better before him and was done better after him. Yes. I mean, I guess it fits into a tradition, but like uh, Arturo said, and I guess this is our way and our opportunity to plug Slayford mods. Yeah. Uh, go, go check them out. But uh, original pirate material uh, could not avoid it uh, in our late 20s yeah. uh, for as much as we wanted to. Yeah. It wouldn't go away. Let's let, let's move on to number seven, the most definitively overrated albums of all time. And this is going to piss off a lot of people. because This is one of the most popular records of, of the 90s and possibly of all time. Yes, and that is the Canadian songstress Alanis Morissette and her 1995 pseudo classic Jagged Little Pill. It's like rain. <laughs> yeah, I know. On my ass. Yeah, ironic, even though none of the lyrics are ironic at all. But anyway, um, this album, when it came out, we all know, you know, anyone growing up in that era and, you know, probably knows how big of a hit this was. She was she was um, everywhere on MTV, on the radio. She had a bunch of hits off this album. Um, even at the time, 20, 20 year old me, 21 year old me, 20 to 21 year old, you know, as I was even then I thought there's man, this is really like kind of like fake pop wannabe fake wannabe pop grunge which is not what you want to be at all you know like <laughs> like, like, like really polished really polished pop fake wannabe gr- pop grunge and then i learned man if i thought this was really pop check out alanis morissette's earlier stuff from the late 80s and early 90s that was straight up new kids on the block type of shit Oh yeah. So like so 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 take that and give it like a slightly grunge feel and then polish it up for radio and you have a bunch of songs about her breaking up with that guy from uh from uh Full House. Full House, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now what, what what's his name again? The the comedian? Dave Goulier. Dave Dave Goulier, right, Goulier. And they yes. were both yeah. So so it was her breakup from that uh, the first song you ought to know is about that. I'm sure several other songs were about him as well. But anyway, yeah. my, my reason for calling this album overrated is A, the production, B, the songwriting. I really don't think is that good. I think it's really corny. Um, I mean, I don't believe in albums being dated, but if anything is dated in the 90s, it's this record right here. Yeah, pretty uh, much. This, and, and, this record is definitely a moment in time. Uh, like you said, uh, sophomore and junior, basically junior year of... Uh, 
college, when I was in my frat boy phase uh, back then, uh, I could not avoid this album. I could not avoid Hootie and the Blowfish. Oh, God. Uh, correct review. And I could not avoid uh, Tragic Kingdom by No Doubt. Uh, that was the triad of, of uh, unbearable records at the time. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll give it up for Alanis. There were a couple of decent songs uh, on that record. Uh, she was working with Glenn Ballard, uh, who had st- struck a hit by co-writing uh, Man in the Mirror from Michael Jackson uh, in yeah. uh, 1988. He, a very, you know, he's a studio pro. He's one of these guys who can write a pop song in 20 minutes. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, more power to her. She sold a gazillion records. She got a Broadway show out of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, I mean, you can't argue with the success of it. Yeah, she got Navarro and uh, Flea uh, to play guitar and bass on You Ought to Know, uh, yeah. which is why it's the best song on the record, because it's the only song that actually rocks. Yeah. Uh, the, the rest of it is sort of cor- sort of cornball confessional pop. Uh, from what I've read, a bunch of it is sort of single take or is just sort of, you know, the organic uh, production of, you know, them collaborating in the studio, coming up with all this crap. Uh, so, you know, it just, yeah, I, I agree. It, it, it's overrated. It was it was a zeitgeist record. You know, she was, a, you know, she was a kind of a hippie chick from Canada who had a lot to say uh, and she wrote breakup songs that resonated for Al, uh, for uh, chicks her age. A lot, which, a, a, a lot to say with little of substance. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. You know, you know, a, a lot to say in the most synthetic way possible. Uh, but it resonated with a bunch of superficial twenty-one-year-old girls that we were surrounded with, and yeah. it, it was like, uh, like all the girls that we thought were hot back in uh, at SU or you would think were hot initially uh, like this record. And then they weren't so hot. <laughs> yeah. I felt the same way. And I got to a point, like if I was talking to a, uh, you know, talking to a, a girl and, uh, and we were talking about music and then she would say how much she likes Alanis Morissette. I just instantly lost attraction to her. Like, okay. Witness test. Litmus done. test, baby. Yeah, I'm done. Yeah. And we, here's what pisses me off too. Like the 1990s is a decade in which like, you know, women in rock became a real thing. You know, like yes. so many, so many solo female artists came up big and, 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 and were making important, great records, you know, and yes, you know, such great, great ones like Liz fair and PJ Harvey and the breeders and yet Sl- Slater Kenny, Slater Kinney. And yet, well, Slater Kinney never aspired to be like, you know, superstar band. Well, anyway, yeah, they never yeah. You know, went for yeah. the swung for the Alanis fence. Yeah. But yeah, PJ Harvey, another one. And yeah. yet Al- Alanis is the one that hit the pinnacle. She's the one that did it. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. Really? And, and yeah. The uh, the Canadian chick who was on you can't uh, you can't do that on television. Right. You know? I know. So when oh, she was nine years old, she got slimed, uh, <laughs> you know. I don't know, green slime. Uh, and then she grew up to be like the iconic uh, songstress, like uh, uh, frazzled, uh, spurned lover bitch from 1995. Yeah, yeah go figure. We, 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 we got slimed by her music. All right. And the next one on this list is an artist that we actually like, but it, it's just this one album that's overrated. Chris, number yes. six. Uh, number six. 
a lot of people will disagree with us on this one. Uh, the Beastie Boys License to Ill. Uh, you know, the, the thing about License to Ill is it's a good record. Uh, and it's in some ways uh, a groundbreaking record, otherwise known as the white boys that took the, the Rick Rubin hip-hop formula to the top of the charts, even higher than Run DMZ. Uh, but here's the thing. Even those guys, uh, by 1988, they were disavowing this record. Yeah, so, they, hate, they hated it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, they said they hated it or they were ashamed to have done it. Essentially, it was a shtick. I mean, look, yeah. I mean, the Beastie Boys formed as a, I guess you could call them a punk band or just sort of a, a garage. Oh, no. The, the, they were straight up a hardcore punk band when they were teenagers, starting up. Yeah, in the, and know. then they they discovered hip hop, and remember, this is when they're like 20, 21, 22 years old. You know, they're all, you know, they're doing a lot of drugs. They're they're partying a lot, and you know, you're talking about uh, these are not uh, guys that like were from the mean streets of anything. You're yeah. talking about the son of a, a very famous Russian American playwright. Yeah, and, you know these are what three Jews from Brooklyn, I believe. And, yeah, they, or, they, 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 they came. They, all three of them came from upper middle class Jewish families in Brooklyn. Yes, and 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 good stock. And so at this point, they're they're wise ass guys just partying and doing this. And hey, you know it's like in a way this thing was a novelty record. It was taking the Rick Rubin beat factory and saying, hey. We want to write songs about girls that we like watching doing the dishes. And, you know, we want to drink Brass Monkey and talk about how we like Brass Monkey. And, you know, we want an excuse to uh, sample when the levee breaks. And, you know, we want to fight for that right to party. Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we want to do it like this, do it like that. We want to do it with a wiffle ball bat. Oh, and hey, let's put it all to record. Uh, this was not this this was not a serious effort by some very talented guys. Now, no. they I think they kind of understood that uh, it was the kind of record that it was a novelty record. Let's face it, that you know could pigeonhole them as the white boys that did the the pop rap in 1987. Well, they got more serious. They moved to L.A. and of course a couple of years later uh, record Paul's Boutique which is brilliant when they were working with the Dust Brothers. One um, of the best hip-hop albums of all time. Pioneering yes. record. Yes. You know? when at Adam Yauch in his psychedelic uh, rock uh, and garage rock uh, uh, phase and finds all of these things. And then they get back to what brung them. And they uh, then uh, proceeded to release a series of adventurous uh, albums that brilliant from... brilliant albums i mean yeah. ch check your head from 1992 kind of like a foresaw the rap metal that would come on later in the decade you yeah know, absolutely. It, 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 it was it was it was like one of the most successful fusions of rock and hip-hop ever yep. ill communi ill communication is a criminally underrated record oh Has yeah some of, their, lot, some of their a lot of great beat singles. work on that Great yeah. beat work and Hello Nasty's fantastic. Hello yeah, Nasty's yeah, Hello work. Nasty is when they started getting more back to sort of the old school vibe. And yeah, started yeah, totally. doing a lot of turntablism and a lot of the sort of uh, uh, kraut. They experimented with even with some kraut rock stuff or some like yeah. vocalized uh, vocals and that. Right. So they got, you know, they they proved to be very adventurous and very thoughtful. Uh, they again by 1998 they were disavowing License to Ill, which ought to tell you everything you need to know. Yeah. Uh, is it a funny record? 
yeah, it's a funny record. It, you know, for the, the the sophomoric asshole in all of us, it's a funny record. Uh, yeah. Are there some great beats on it? Yeah, absolutely. Rhyming and stealing, great beat. No sleep till Brooklyn, great beat. You know, Rick Rubin uh, had a simple formula for beats, which are huge ass drum machine beats and guitars. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean. Uh, Rolling Stone had it as the top debut uh, album of all time in their bullshit. Yeah, that, no, that's that's appetite for destruction. Uh, no, I don't even think that that no, it's Pearl Jam's ten. What de- debut albums of all time? Yes, yes. Bullshit. Uh, it's it's appetite for destruction. Uh, Pearl Jam always better than GNR ten all I'll the fight, way. I'll fight you to the death on that one, baby. No, and you'll uh, lose. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm- On this episode, Chris and I counted down the 10 most definitively overrated albums of all time. For the next episode, we'll take a trip down memory lane to our wonder years. September 1985. Oh, what a month. We were 10 years old, starting fifth grade, and the beginning pangs of pubescence weren't far away. But boy, did a lot happen in that month in rock and pop music that kind of shaped the second half of the decade. Tune in as the curmudgeons talk about Farm Aid, the American government trying to censor the music industry, Michael Jackson pulling a fast one on Paul McCartney, Jefferson Starship destroying our ears with the worst song ever recorded, and much more. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter at at curmudgeon pod now we go to number five on our list of the most definitively overrated albums of all time and this is going to piss off a whole lot of british music fans and uh indie hipster fans here stateside well not here because i'm in korea but anyway over there stateside where chris is (laughs) (laughs) and this is the brit pop band pulp and their supposedly classic 1995 album, Different Class. Now, when you think of 1990s Britpop, the first band that comes to mind is Oasis. Obviously, they were the biggest British band of the 90s. Well, them and Radiohead, right? You think of Oasis, you think of Blur. Um, I tend to think of Elastica because I think they were a fantastic band. Yeah, and, one of the great the great forgotten band of Britpop is Elastica and, for sure. And many many curmudgeonly episodes ago, we did Elastica in our vault segment. However, this this band Pulp is another band that comes up in the great '90s Britpop albums. And um, I seriously think not only is this band oh no, no, sorry not only is this album overrated, but this band is sickeningly overrated. And yeah. this is coming. And this is coming from a guy who likes the Smiths, and I think, <laughs> and, and I think, and and I think Pulp sucks. So there, so that says something right there, you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, different class from '95. Um, this album is praised left and right. Enemy uh, has it as one of the greatest albums of all time. Rolling Stone, the latest 500, has it really high. I forgot which number. I'm not even going to go into it. Uh, yeah. whatever, whatever number it has, it doesn't deserve it, even if it's number 500. <laughs> um, this is an incredibly overrated album. I will admit it has two great singles. Uh, my my I, I, Our curmudgeonly friend, Chris, you don't like uh, common people. I think it's a great single. Um, and I think Disco 2000 is a great single. It's a great use of a, kind of a ripoff of Laura Branigan's Gloria, especially <laughs> in the riff. Da-na-na, da-na-na, you know, 
you know, it's, it's actually pretty clever um, and pretty kitschy. But again, kitschy, kitsch, that is what, in my opinion, buries pulp. I said earlier in uh, my talking, uh, my in my teaser, that, um, you know, like I said, uh, if you're sick of pretentious indie hipster scum, and there are many of them out there, who actually hail pulp as a great Britpop band. I've, our buddy Mike in Philly loves pulp. Um, um, uh, another old friend of ours who I haven't spoken to in a long time, but uh, um, um, Chris knows him. Um, uh, another big pulp fan. We have several friends who are pulp fans, but my God, is Jarvis Cocker's shtick so fucking annoying. It's contrived. Yeah. It's campy. It's inauthentic. I don't think his lyrics are as great as his as his uh, his defenders hail it to be. I find, like I said, his shtick is inauthentic and campy. The music is really campy. The music is a yeah. it's like basically 80s new wave pop overdosed and campy kitsch. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah, which, and, and, it, and, and, and and half the songs are cocker being a stalker. I spy you, ooh, you know, yeah. and, and, and I mean, when he, when he's, when he's really, when he's narrowed down to a specific target, like he was in common people, he's pretty good. And I will go as far as to admitting that I actually like the follow-up. This is hardcore from 1998. That's actually a pretty good record because it's Jarvis Cocker at his most human. You know, he yeah. sounds, he sounds natural. He doesn't sound like he's like, putting you on with his stupid ironic shtick and yeah and his ridiculous campiness yeah and it's more of a rock record too so it's more of a rock record and lyrically it actually sounds like he's actually communicating to me whereas with everything else pulp did before this is hardcore it's just style it's just posturing yeah. campy kitsch posturing even the lyrics sound can't be like like, like they're, they're campy kitsch posturing lyrics which gives mm -hmm. it no depth whatsoever at least for example beck beck is like you know, the super irony guy of the 1990s even with beck if you dig through his lyrics there's some sincerity and, and there's an authentic soulfulness in there which cocker just usually just does not have he had it yeah. oh this is hardcore because i think this is that this was him coming down from his drug addiction and like him looking in the mirror and, and coming to grips with himself as who he is. And he put up and, and, and this is hardcore is a very unpulp like record. That's why it's their best album. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I was going to say, uh, look, uh, Arturo kind of hinted at it. Uh, common people was like a, basically a hit. It was an MTV staple and it was, it was a huge uh, in the UK. It's an anthem. <laughs> oh yeah. I know it was huge in the UK, but even here, uh, it was in regular rotation on MTV, regular rotation on the alternative rock uh, stations. I couldn't stand it. Uh, I just thought, like you said, it was it was this campy, pretentious, insufferable, uh, just sort of silly, saccharine kind of almost sing-alongy kind of thing. And it was just, you know, Jarvis Cocker I couldn't take seriously because he obviously was was. Uh, impressed with way too impressed with his own shtick uh you know this idea of pretentious and psychotic and so he's trying he's trying to play like he's antisocial, but he's also like the sexiest girl at the bar at the same time yeah and you and you can't and you can't do that and not make me roll my eyes and yeah. so so the song was like blah 
the dude was just what the fuck. Um, and so, yeah, I totally had an aversion to him. And so I, I have avoided deep dives into pulp over the years because of that. Uh, it takes a lot for me to have an aversion to that degree. But Jarvis Cocker, that dude had a force field with knives and spikes. Like it was like stalactites. Off yeah. to number off to number four, a band that really doesn't do irony at all. <laughs> Chris? Nope. Nope. <laughs> Green Day. Uh Green Day does not do irony, although it'd be interesting if they did. Uh hand it to Billy Joe Armstrong. The guys which, are really which which album? Which album is this, Chris? Dookie. From nineteen ninety four. Yes. Uh the uh the very sophomorically intentionally sophomorically titled Dookie. Which the is the f- album, the, four- the fourth most definitively overrated album of all time. Yes, number four. Uh, this is the album that launched a uh, a Berkeley uh, East Bay uh, punk band into the stratosphere. Uh, uh, okay, so again, Green Day uh, and Billy John Armstrong, uh, good uh, writer of orthodox pop songs uh, of either Ernesty or um, what would you call it? Sort of, well, there's, there's melancholy, there's anger, there's sincerity, uh, there's, uh, kind of a boyish hopefulness. Okay, fine. These are all good things, but Dookie, um, well, one, they ended up doing several records that were, uh, that were much better, uh, than that, uh, Nimrod and American Idiot, uh, probably being their two best records. And so, that's one thing. And so this album gets revered. It sold like what? Like 10 million, 11 million, 12 yeah, million records. Huge, huge. Uh, you know, just dominated, had at least three or four uh, hit singles that are still all over the radio, especially Basket Case. Uh, that's the one that's kind of stood the test of time, uh, which is my least favorite song on the entire record. Uh, it's overrated because while it might have been indicative of where the culture was going, this was a real punk band that broke just as grunge was starting to fall uh, into the sea. And this was kind of the replacement for uh, grunge, which is really no accident because people were still looking for harder edge sound. And so remember them and the offspring kind of represented yeah. a thing yeah. in the spring of 1994. Was it a great thing? Nah, not really. <laughs> uh, but the point being here is it's overrated. Everybody's like, oh, that's one of the great American punk uh, albums of all time bullshit it's a it's a pop record done with fast guitars and a guy who could drum his ass off yeah. <laughs> and exactly. cool. yeah 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 i mean and and really if you think about it it's i mean look green day is another one of those bands that found its way to broadway why because uh, essentially at his best and at his heart billy joe armstrong is a writer of show tunes and so you could make an argument that stuff like uh, Basket Case and When I Come Around, those are show tunes. And so I don't know. It's It doesn't move me that much. Uh, I don't think the album sucks. Uh, I don't think it's that great either. Uh, Welcome to Paradise is an all-time great single. Uh, that's the one standout uh, that I love. The rest of it, hopelessly mediocre, hopelessly does not move me. Uh, hopelessly does not want me to listen to this album on repeat. And in a couple of instances, especially basket case, uh, is one of the 
few songs uh, not done by Creed or Linkin Park, that makes me change the channel on the <laughs> on the radio when I'm driving. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's hey, like I said, more power to Billy Joe Armstrong, a wonderful writer of show tune type pop. Yep. Uh, but as a punk now, I'll take a pass. Yeah, I mean, interesting you point out the show, the Broadway show tune. I could totally hear Basket Case being done as a Broadway show tune. It has that kind of melody. It has that kind of chord progression. I totally get it. Um, Here's the thing with Green Day. I do not deny them their street cred. Yeah, they do. They do. Have, they do have real street cred. Um, they came from that Berkeley. Uh, uh, the was it Berkeley? Yeah, they came from Berkeley. They came yeah. from that that, that Berkeley um, straight edge punk rock scene. That was a yep. real scene. There was a real scene. It was a descendant, or you can say an offspring. No pun intended. <laughs> you know, uh, a descendant of what basically Ian Mackay started with earlier with Minor Threat, and then later with Fugazi. These are, yeah. these are they, these are all kids who like listen to Minor Threat and Fugazi. Say, like, hey, well, let's do our own scene, our own version of this, and yeah, all power pre- to yeah, them. pretty much, yeah, pretty yeah. much, and yeah. and you know, yeah, don't discount the Dead Kennedys too. I mean, sure, yeah, because they're from San Francisco, obviously. Yeah. So yeah, so so Green Day has street cred as as a as a real punk band. I agree, they are a punk rock band, but they are a very 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 poppy, you know, a uh, punk rock band. And like, like you said, I think they're more of a pop band that did punk. Yeah. Whereas, let's say, Husker Du, later on in their, in their stretch, they were a serious punk band that did pop, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I, I, don't th- I, don't, I don't think a pop band doing punk is, is a bad thing. I just no. don't think I don't. I just think Billy Joe Armstrong's an overrated as fuck songwriter. And I think Dookie ushered in the era of just childish kindergarten punk rock basically songs about picking your nose and masturbating sorry man i, I was reared on joe strummer the clash and the room and, and and shit like that that's not punk rock yeah the ramones did stupid shit but when, whenever the ramones did stupid shtick there was some serious like resonance behind it you know 53rd and third is about a male prostitute you know beat on the brat yeah. if, you, if you read the lyrics it's actually pretty horrifying it's about physically assaulting a child well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 pretty much you know, i mean yeah, yeah that's like the essence of uh you know east village punk rock right there yeah is, yeah let's go beat up children arturo what is the number three most definitively overrated record of all time you see at least with green day there's one album that i like and they have a smattering of singles that i like so i don't totally hate billy joe i agree billy joe got better as a songwriter Number three is a band that I fucking hated when I first heard them. And I've continued to dislike their music. And their music has gotten worse. It sucked at first, and it's gotten even worse. Yeah. And that is maybe my pick. Uh, This is the number three most definitively overrated album of all time. My pick for the number one most definitively overrated band of all time. Number three, Arcade Farce. And their debut album from 2004, Funeral. Oh, oh. and hey, for for the much less educated than us, that's the Arcade Fire. <laughs> let's let's be yeah. fair. Yeah, listen, man. All the things that people like to make fun of and criticize Bono and U2 for, for being pompous and bloated and indulgent and self-important, 
Dude, you can point all of that and twofold on Win Butler and Arcade Fire. Yeah, seriously. And you can, more, I would say even more so than Bono. Because at least with Bono, you kind of felt that he meant it. Yeah. I, I've never gotten that from Win Butler. Like with Jarvis Cocker, but not as kitschy and not as campy. It's indie hipster shtick. And it's no surprise that Arcade Fire fans, who are the most obnoxious fans in all of rock and roll... And of course, when this album came out in, in fall of 2004, it got big in 2005. And I'm here listening to the whole album like, what the fuck is this bullshit, like fucking wannabe indie, <laughs> uh, wannabe indie, wannabe indie yet craving to be arena rock bullshit. At least U2 was inventive with some of the music they made. Are, there's nothing mm-hmm. inventive about Arcade Fire. It's just like overly theatrical you know, overly, overly emotional. I don't want to say camp, but just bloated fucking shit with crappy melodies, crappy songwriting. And even their second album was basically a bullshit fake Springsteen. So like in every step of their direct, and then the, the album after that, they tried to, they, they recruited James Murphy. They went electronic. Let's take the arcade fire bombastic arena rock song, make it electronic. Cause now and it was James terrible Murphy. and not even the great. And I love James Murphy and not even he could make a chicken salad out of chicken shit. That yeah, is, I was arc- that, say. Is ar- that is arcade fires music. No, yeah, like, I- like, like, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Yes. No, I, I'm sorry. I, it, I was going to say about the, um, the James Murphy Arcade Fire marriage. I was actually hopeful about that because I thought if anybody could uh, find uh, uh, Win Butler's uh, uh, inner uh, goodness and rhythm, yeah, and, and and bring out maybe a fun side uh, to Mr. Butler, it would have been James Murphy. Uh, nope, uh, didn't didn't work. And, so how, how would you describe Arcade Fire's music in a sentence, Chris? Uh, ten pounds of shit in a five pound bag. Uh, I mean, basically they just, they just try to stuff way too much in and way too much drama. And, you know, Win Butler is just, um, and look, Bono, Bono could sing Win Butler can't sing. Oh, Uh, he's a terrible, terrible voice. Yeah. Yeah. Win Butler might as well be Tarzan. (laughs) (laughs) My God. So yeah. Like, yeah, like I said, it's, it's just, uh, melodramatic. You know, indie trying to be bombastic arena pomp without the song craft behind it. The song craft yeah. just isn't there. They don't I have will the say song. This. I will say the, this. They have the sound. They don't have the. They don't have the songs. They have one great song, which, which is wake. Is which is wake up from which the first is on, from, from the funeral, which yeah. is the album we're talking about, and yeah. uh, that is one of the top alternative rock, whatever, modern rock, whatever you want to call it, singles of the 2000s, which, you know, I I love how it does the buildup. And for maximalism, it has a sort of anthemic quality. And then the second half, it just kind of gets this, uh, you know, when it when it revs up, it almost gets this kind of like 50s or early 60s kind of swing going to it. So that's a fun song. Uh, for a for a maximal over the top uh, rock anthem, that's the way you do it. The only problem is is that they tried to do that with every damn song. Yeah, and uh, it it was it was kind of like Jose Canseco. You know, you would have a few towering home runs a year, and then the rest of the time you were striking out so bad that you were causing headwinds behind home plate. 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's basically the arcade fire and they did it over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, for 15 years. Like I said, even James Murphy couldn't save them. Uh, that, that was, that was chipper. <laughs> that was chipper. <laughs> and the next one is even, even happier. Number two, most definitively overrated album of all time from one of the most unlikable rock stars of all time. Chris, who is it? Oh, we're talking about holes live through this. Or, or, uh, as, you, or as you said earlier, Courtney Hole. Yeah, Courtney Hole. <laughs> uh, so, so this is Courtney Love. Um, and yeah, Cor- uh, I think Hole was short for asshole. Uh <laughs> Because, you know, Courtney Love, obviously, you know, she's a household name. I don't need to go too much into her. She's a she's an L.A. chick who was well reared. Uh, she played Nancy in the movie. Sid. Nancy was very good. But yeah. uh, she actually played uh, uh, in The People versus Larry Flint. She played the girlfriend of Larry Flint. Right. right. And was very good. So she's a good actress. Yeah. And so that's a pretext for why this album is so overrated. It, because... helped, her, it, helped, her, it helped her in her music career for sure. Yeah, absolutely, because uh, she basically she was good on Artifice and she found herself married to Kurt Cobain. And not only that, uh, she and I know this is probably going to make me asshole of the year. And so write me at curmudgeonrock at gmail dot com. But uh, she played the sexual violence card in a way that uh, was for me. And again, I'm a dude, so, you know, maybe misplaced but just felt really overwrought and fake and almost exploitive yeah. in, in, in the way that she did it. I mean, yeah. she did it with a few of her songs with Violet and Asking For It and Doll Parts and you know, a lot of a lot of that stuff. I mean, look, were some of those good songs? Yes, especially Asking For It, but it just felt r- like really, really fake uh, through the whole thing. And, you know, a lot of people look at it as being this big uh, anthemic, uh, hooky, uh, sort of female uh, alternative or sort of female response to all the grunge dudes. Right. Because, you know, it it basically was a Seattle. I mean, at that point, uh, she was going back and forth between L.A. and Seattle and half her band was Seattle. Um, And so, okay, there's one great song on the record. Uh, Miss World, uh, which is so good and has such an edge to it. I've always been convinced that if Kurt Cobain didn't write it, he was at <laughs> least in the room during the sessions and had a huge influence on it because it's the greatest uh, phony Nirvana song uh, one of them ever recorded. Uh, brilliant, brilliant stuff. And uh, she played the irony card uh, on that one uh, very, very well. The rest of the record, though, not a whole lot of good songs. You know, the hits and the ones that everybody knows, yes, pretty good songs, uh, pretty melodic. Uh, but the rest of it is just this droning kind of um, the melodies are like, bleh. yeah, and, and, and it's just her kind of like trying to vamp uh, on, on certain things and with this sort of echoey vocals, it, it really, to me is kind of a boring record. And like I said, the, the main reason I think it's overrated is because she's celebrated for who she was or for the, icon- the iconoclasm for the association with Cobain. Uh, and with those couple of anthems about sexual violence, 
but I really think that she just is a phony baloney and oh, she always oh, she always was yeah and, and a product of ambition and she kind of went went where the winds uh, blew and it's really kind of just reflected on this record where she is only able to get deep for a few songs and then the rest of it is a bunch of meandering bullshit. And I think the ultimate indictment of this record is that a few years later in 1998, uh, Hole releases Celebrity Skin, which is a way better record. Why? Because it's California sunny pop where Billy Corgan co-wrote or wrote three (laughs) or four of the best songs, including the wonderful uh, title track, uh, Celebrity Skin and Malibu. also at that time, she had uh, Melissa Off Demore in the band uh, to replace uh, bassist Kristen Pfaff, who had died of heroin overdose. Uh, Melissa Off Demore was a very, very talented bassist and musician and harmony vocalist. And so, with her there, they're a better band, but they went full poppy and they yeah. went very, they went very California and yeah. just sort of very, uh, you know, sort of uh, celebrity skin is her sort of uh, goofing on artifice. So you know, mm. I just don't see it. I mean, look, lift this. It's an angry album, but it's it's a superficially angry record. Yeah, yeah, no shit. Very superficially angry record. And as Arturo has pointed out uh, on this show uh, at various times and in conversations, and even in a recent Facebook scrap, uh, there's about what. 20 bands and female artists that were contemporaries of Courtney Love that did the same thing way better. And when, yeah. when, when they talked about female empowerment and recovery from sexual violence and all that, did it way more compellingly, did it way more convincingly, angrily, and let's face it, did it a whole lot better. Better songs, better singing, better arrangements, right. better playing. Um, and uh, even in the case of Bikini Kill and Kathleen Hanna, and uh, with the women from Slater Kenny, better personas. Yeah, so no, that's all yeah, I have to say. Yeah, no, I mean, well, you pretty much said it all. I mean, the thing with me is that, um, oh man, like, like you said, you know, I, I want to proactively defend ourselves against accusations of sexism. Oh, you don't like Courtney Hole in love? Oh, because she was a female in rock and roll. She was a, an actual woman with an actual female point of view in a, in, a, in a man's world of rock and roll. You should love, they should respect it. No, because she got the airplay that deservedly should have gone to other much better, more authentic, more original female rock and roll artists. Like some of the ones you mentioned, and I'll mention Liz Fair. I'll mention PJ Harvey. I'll mention half of Stereo Lab. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'll, I'll mention um, uh, the Breeders. I'll mention um, uh, Seven Year Bitch, a Seattle band that was way better than Hole. Yeah. I'll, L- I'll mention L- L- L7. Seven, another one, way better than Hole. Fucking you know? awesome band. Yeah. yeah. Those are all female rock and roll artists, all with authentic female points of view that did not get the airplay that Courtney Love got. Courtney Love got it because she played the game. She was Kurt Cobain's wife and she and she she hustled her way to where she got. I respect her in that regard. She has hustle. You know, you got to you got to I got to have game. The woman had some game. As far as talent, no. Fuck that. She didn't have that much talent at all. And second of all, 
her little kinder whore look that she made popular during this period, you know, the people, oh, it was called in the media, the kinder whore, you know, kinder yeah. whore look, you know, the, you know, yeah, her, yeah. Her, don't, her, don't, don't, don't blame us for that one, folks. Yeah, no, no, that, that was actually the name it was given. And, and it was, uh, it was her, you know, in, in a little girl's outfit, but all grungy and mussy and looking yeah. all slutty and with makeup and whatever. She was in a band before Hole. She was in a band called Babes in Toyland. Yes. Another all-female band that was way better than Hole. But anyway, Courtney Love was briefly a member of that band. And Kat Bieland, the lead singer, guitarist, and main songwriter of that band. Who's amazing. She, she made, she created that look. That yes. once Courtney Love got kicked out of the band, she basically appropriated that look for whole so that look was originally babes in toyland and their album from 1992 fontanelle one of the best grunge albums of the era i highly recommend anyone get it uh or listen to it that's an uh an option for a future uh uh vault segment but anyway yeah courtney love did not originate the kinder whore look she stole it from cat bieland when she was in the band babes in toyland uh another great band and yeah and every and everything and all the other points you made chris i'm with Lots of 1990s was a great decade for female empowerment in rock and roll. Courtney Love should not be the number one pinnacle person on that on that list. Not at all. Overrated. And now we we and I can't wait for this. Uh, we move on to the single most overrated album in the history of rock and roll, according to the curmudgeons. Arturo. Do Here your we thing. go. It is number one. And the distinction goes to Jeff Buckley and his album, his only album that he released in his lifetime, Grace from 1994. Now, this album is revered by so many people. It, it, it is revered mostly for his, his vocals. And I admit, the guy, the guy is a great, has, had, you know, like his father, Tim Buckley, you know, and he inherited Tim Buckley's amazing voice, his octave range, all of that. Um, but two things why I think Grace suffers. Number one, I don't like opera. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Jeff Buckley on Grace aspires to the operatic, him being the big, um, uh, uh, Edith Piaf fan that he was. And a lot of the songs are very, he, he tries to pick operatic vocals and operatic dynamics into basically what they are basically are folk rock songs. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. opera and folk rock are two great tastes that do yeah. not go great together. Yeah, well, I don't like opera at all. Fuck opera. And so so put, putting, that, putting that with folk rock, and may I say very generic, middle-of-the-road, underwritten, like pretty crappy, like sub-counting crows folk rock. No offense, Chris. I know you're a Counting Crows fan. I can't stand them either. But yeah, it's really bad songs with a bad musical idea, albeit with a very talented singer who had a talented voice. But this is a guy, Jeff Buckley, who A, needed a songwriter, B, needed a better band, C, needed a real producer, a better producer yeah. to get him in the studio and give him a real artistic vision. This is the classic example of a wonderfully talented vocalist who fancies themselves as a, as an all around artist who, yeah, I can sing. I can write great lyrics. I can write great songs. No, Jeff, you can sing. You could sing. That's it. You can, you could not write songs. You could not write good lyrics. 
even your covers. I'm not, I'm not, people love his version of a Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. I'm not a fan of it. I don't like his vocals on Hallelujah. Great voice done in a bad way on a really, in my opinion, a shitty cover. I know I'm, I'm in the minority. I'm alone on the island that thinks Jeff Buckley's version of Hallelujah sucks, but I know. And I'm, but I, I will stand by that Grace is just not that good of a record and i've given it a chance i've i've tried to like it i've listened to it several times i'm like my god this is like it's it's sub counting crows and even though his his, his hero is robert plant jeff buckley loves robert plant yeah but even dude even solo robert plant is better than this oh i know yeah and well i don't know uh robert plant's been doing great solo stuff in the well, last 50, 15 years yes, well that, yes, that that's, that, true. that's true well that and stuff with alison krauss and so uh, yeah. Robert Plant, the uh, the the twilight here of his career has been great. But anyway, yeah. uh, my thought on Jeff Buckley is it it kind of uh, he's the epitome of one of my uh, my great uh, uh, philosophies of life, or one of my great indictment statements of life, which is handsome guys can get away with anything. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, ha- handsome guy with an operatic voice. Uh, I remember when I was doing online dating back in like the early 2000s, mid 2000s, late 2000s, and then into the 2010s, you would get all these profiles of all these girls really like, oh, Jeff Buckley's grace makes me cry. Oh, it just sings to my heart. It's the sexiest album. And I'm like, oh, God. And I'm just like I said, handsome guys get away with anything. So, okay, fine. It's the voice. I will say this. The Hallelujah cover if it wasn't for him would be wonderful. Uh, the, they found the best pace for that song and the best rhythm and this, this beautiful guitar. Uh, and this, again, just the tempo, uh, just the, the meaning of that song. I know MTV is the one that popularized that version of it because they played it over scenes of nine 11, the destruction of nine 11 over and over and over again. Which I will say at the time made me cry, but it was the the aesthetic of the song, but his vocal performance. It's kind of like imagine like an American Idol semifinalist, and you know how like they like to yeah karaoke and like butcher the hell and like they're trying to yeah. impress uh, the judges by doing runs over everything. Uh, yeah. That's that's what Jeff Buckley was doing on that. Uh, look, the cover of Lilac Wine Wine is pretty good. Uh, last goodbye. Again, it's another one of those cases like the music, uh, like the little pedal steel thing that's going on in there. Uh, you know, great little tempo and all of that, but he ruins it with his goddamn voice. And that is the thing that happens over and over and over again. There are. a ta- he, he, he is a he's a talented singer. He has a great voice who uses it badly. Yes, there are eleven <laughs> songs over the course of fifty-seven minutes on Grace. He ruins ten of them uh, <laughs> just through his singing and through his whatever his shtick was, his his emotiveness or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I, 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 I would call it his his his, his operatic affectations. Yes, that is a very good way to put it. Uh, Lilac Wine, he actually kind of plays it straight and kind of understates it a little bit. So th- that's my favorite uh, track on that record. Again, you know, for a while, I, I will admit I did own Grace. Um, I liked it at first, but then I just caught on to the fact of like, this this is kind of ridiculous. 
You know, yeah. this guy's this guy's vocal stylings. I just oh, uh, you know, you and I are just in that camp. We do not understand the reverence for Jeff Buckley, and yeah. it has nothing to do with the fact that he drowned in 1997. <laughs> uh, because yeah. by 1997, there was the cult of adoring women and gay men, probably who adored the handsome guy who could sing his ass off. Yeah. And he got and he got away with it. Uh, and so me, mediocre record that's forever celebrated for the most uh, simplistic and superficial and dumbest of reasons. Yeah, basically show off the operatic affectations. That's Jeff Buckley in a nutshell. Yeah, it's him, yeah. And, Te- it's him and Ted Bundy that proved that handsome guys can get away with anything. The Vault. Welcome to The Vault. The Vault is where Arturo and I... Uh, we go deep into the retresses of our treasure chests, otherwise known as our uh, as our archives, as our musical collections. In Arturo's case, he's probably up to at least about three terabytes worth of shit. In uh, <laughs> but me, I just stick to Spotify, which means I'm the lame one here. But anyway, uh, what we do is we plumb every week. We want you to be as excited about our old shit as we are and we want to inspire you to go uh, search for your old stuff too and again we encourage you to make vault recommendations for us to cover uh, through uh, any of our uh, many uh, forums uh, that we have already described most especially our email and our social media uh, anyway uh, so real simple exercise we both have an old album we're both going to review it so Arturo what old yeah. album are you bringing out of the vault? Yes. We're, I'm doing a, a German band from the 1970s called Faust and their album Faust 4, Roman numeral 4. Now, when people think of the uh, unfortunately titled Krautrock, <laughs> yeah. uh, basically it's a subgenre of rock consisting of German rock bands from the 1970s. When people think of that, people think of the massively influential can. They think of Noi, and they think of Kraftwerk, who people forget that before they were an electronic group, they actually were a band with organic instruments. Yes. Anyway, so anyway, and rightfully so, they should think of those bands. As we, and as we discussed a few episodes ago, Can and Kraftwerk uh, should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame just for their influence alone. However, on this episode, we're going to shine, or in this segment, I should say, we're going to shine a light on one of the lesser renowned bands from this golden era of underground German rock. And that band is, of course, Faust. Now, that Faust were formed in Bremen, the city of Bremen, in early 1971. And their maniacally intense live shows and the glowing press reviews of these shows gave them enough of a reputation in the underground rock community to secure recording contract with Polydor Records. Now, released in late 71, their self-titled debut didn't really sound like their live shows and was full of long experimental soundscape pieces. Naturally, it didn't sell at all, (laughs) much to Polydor's chagrin. So uh, in 1972, they put out their second album called So Far. And while it still maintained Faust's penchant for sonic adventurism, jazzy flourishes and that repetitive hypnotic grooves in keeping with the rest of the Krautrock scene, 
it actually showed some conventional songwriting and, God forbid, melodies and subtle pop hooks. All you have to do is check out the opening track of that album. It's a rainy day, sunshine girl to find out what it would be like if can and the velvet underground actually got together. (laughs) It really does sound like that. So while so far it was critically hailed for its innovation and sold more than the first album, it didn't really sell enough for Polydor and their expectations. So uh, Faust were eventually dropped from the label and later picked up by Richard Branson and Mm -hmm. Virgin Records. We all know who Richard Branson is, right? Spaceman. Yeah. Well, he owned a record label called Virgin Records. Yes, he did. And uh, and uh, and and they had a record store chain called Virgin Virgin Record Stores. Anyway, now how did Branson reward? How did uh, sorry? How did Faust reward the faith of Richard Branson? Well, in June 1973, they put out the Faust tapes. That's the name of the album, the Faust tapes, which was a cut and paste collage of sliced bits and pieces from their private practice sessions, which were not originally intended for public release, mind you. (laughs) So this hodgepodge collection of mostly under one-minute jams, quote-unquote, and that's putting it lightly, was so uncommercial that Virgin issued the album at the price of a single, (laughs) 48 pence in UK money. Because there's no way they could charge this as a full album because it wasn't. It was just a bunch of one-minute sound snippets. Granted, this was part of a deal that Cannes manager Uwe Nettelbeck made with Virgin. (laughs) For the the first album, they would give Virgin a collection of Faust recordings completely for free. Like, here's an album. You don't have to pay us for it. For free. You can take it. And they gave it to Virgin to do whatever they wished with it as far as pricing and marketing. Now, me personally, I can only assume this was done in order to entice Virgin to sign the band with the hopes that the next Virgin album would be the quote-unquote real album. Here, we'll give you a real album of nothing but like shit fragments for free. Release that, charge it as a single, And then we'll give you the next album for real. And Virgin said, hey, two albums for the price of one. Sure, we'll do that. That's what I think the the thinking was. It had to have been that. Why else would they do this? Anyway, was it worth it from Virgin's perspective to do this kind of deal with Faust? Well, from an artistic standpoint of having one of the boldest, most original rock recordings of the 1970s as part of your catalog, yes, yes. Release was released in the fall of 73. Faust 4 combines that typical unpredictability and adventurousness and spontaneity of Can, uh, the sonic innovation of Noi, particularly in those un-guitar-like guitar sounds, with a this perverse sense of humor that most of the German bands of that era simply lacked, really. Um, recorded partly in England and partly in Munich. The album kicks off with the aptly named Krautrock, <laughs> as, as if the band yeah. was poke, poking fun at the whole image making and the nearly oh, yeah, that's, status. That's you know, very meta. Yeah, of the yeah, they, they were meta humor before there was meta humor. You know, they were kind of poking fun of it. Anyway, it, the song itself is an eleven-minute droning instrumental. 
Now, parody or not, <laughs> it's one of the most spellbinding tracks on the album, which has this, this swirling whirlpool of shifting rhythms, skittering synthesizers, and this wall of sound, molten lava guitar playing, all held together by a very punchy, repetitive bass line. So think cluster meets noi for all of you Krautrock files out there, of which I'm probably the only one. But anyway, uh, the humor kicks in with The Sad Skinhead, a rather audacious song title considering that this is a German band. <laughs> uh, this song, with its, uh, it's got the staccato reggae guitar, xylophone flourishes, jaunty drum rhythm, and this exaggerated corny vocal shtick. Somehow it works. It's <laughs> one of the catchiest songs in the album. Uh, yep. You got you have Jennifer, which with this lyrically, it's a romantic relationship relationship song, a plea to appease a pissed off woman. But musically, it's the most seductive and beautiful track on the album. You know, it, it, keeping this down tempo hypnotic rhythm with this gorgeous melancholy guitar arpeggio. Uh, the song eventually dissolves into this whacked out guitar static before transforming itself into an almost ragtime jazz piano instrumental. Yeah, you heard that right. <laughs> yep. um, extreme juxtaposition of moods and textures is basically a Faust trademark. And uh, this album pulls it off better than anything else in their discography. Uh, Just a Second starts off as a funk jam with groovy guitar soloing, then segues into this mind-bending cacophony of synth noise and guitar feedback that oddly holds together really well. Um, then you have the, the, the coup de gras, you know, Picnic on a Frozen River. Starts off as a happily demented sing-along with a foreboding guitar solo underpinning it all before it evolves into like this soft machine style jazz rock jam complete with like scronking saxophone solo before it transforms into an, an up-tempo race between a cartoonish synth riff and a dissonant gnarly guitar solo, where the guitarist is clearly mangling the wah-wah pedal to death. <laughs> yes, this is all one song. Yep. So, how do you end such a schizophrenic album? Well, with a languid acoustic folk number embellished with minimal cymbal brushing from the drummer that ends with a woman doing spoken word in Swedish and a guitar solo that is at times trying to evoke the sound of someone vomiting. Okay. That's, that's the end. <laughs> yeah. That, that's that's a, that sounds like a story from the, the old national lampoon, like something <laughs> Harold, Harold Ramis would have wrote back then. Yeah, so. totally. It sounds like a parody of Kraut rock. It kind of is, but they mm -hmm. pull it off. And I swear yeah. it's, this all sounds 100% better than I'm describing it. Yeah. So in, in a German music scene filled with oddballs, Faust were the most oddballish of the bunch. And unfortunately, their record sales reflected that. <laughs> you know, Virgin were willing to give the band one more chance, but the label rejected recordings they made for a fifth album. And they broke up soon after in 1975. Uh, oh. So, Arturo, you remember the Pointer Sisters, right? Oh, yeah, of course. So, I'm old enough. I'm old enough to remember them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so the you know, this is when we were little kids that the Pointer Sisters had their moment in the glorious pop limelight with a series of adult contemporary uh, kind of horny old lady songs. 
uh, by this point, they're in their mid to late thirties. And so, you know, slow hand and jump and, yeah. uh, the neutron jump dance, my love. Yeah. Jump in. Yeah. Great, great video. I mean, Hey, those women could still move. They were all pushing 40. Yeah. So, so that's what we know them from. We know them from their sort of sellout pop uh, days. However, uh, did you know that they played the grand old Opry in 1974? No, I did not know that. They, did they get booed off the stage? <laughs> no, actually, at first they they got some some jeers, and you you can just imagine that audience and what they would say to a bunch of black ladies. Yeah, uh, you know, it was one thing to have Charlie Pride; it's another thing to have these uh, these black women from Oakland, California, on their stage. Yeah. So, uh, but from what I've read, they they won them over. Uh, that was in 1974. It was kind of groundbreaking, but. The reason that they were there. Did you know that the Pointer Sisters won a Grammy uh, in 1974 or for 1974 for best country vocal performance by a duo or group? No, I did not know that. Yeah, this was for the song Fairy Tale, which huh. is a, a wonderfully orthodox country song written by Anita and Bonnie Porter uh, or Pointer. Uh, yeah, they, uh, they wrote it, I guess, in a hotel room in Woodstock, New York, and it became a staple of a fascinating, uh, journey through the historical black music called That's a Plenty hmm. uh, from 1974. This was their second record. Uh, they were signed to Geffen Records at this point. Now the Pointer Sisters, there were four of them, Anita, Bonnie, uh, June and Ruth, uh, they went in and out of being a four piece and a three piece because of various personal issues and, uh, uh issues with, uh, alcohol and drugs. But at the time there were still all four of them. They were sisters, obviously the pointer sisters, duh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they grew up, they grew up lower middle-class working class in Oakland, California by way of Arkansas. And it's the Arkansas piece that's important because they were reared on country music. They were reared on blues. They were reared on gospel and on jazz. And so on uh, That's a Plenty, they explore all of this. And it's a, yeah. it's a fascinatingly strange record. Uh, they mm. started off uh, very tongue-in-cheek, uh, very humorous. It's a uh, mandolin-driven, almost ragtimey barbershop quartet uh, piece called Banging on the Pipes. <laughs> where it, it, it's almost Irish in its in its uh, construct about their experience growing up with the heat going off during the winters because they were too broke to afford the, to afford the heat. Uh, and, and then, of course, this leads to an extrapolation of a 1950s uh, theatrical piece called Steam Heat, which wow. you know, which turns in, you know, obviously is, is very uh, innuendo ish. Uh, but then this segues into a cover of an old Dizzy Gillespie song called Salt Peanuts, which is a very fast, orthodox ragtime blues or ragtime yeah, yeah. jazz. Oh, like of jazz. course. Yeah. 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 Jazz, jazz blues. And then they just go through it. The next song is Grinning in Your Face, which is a mm. cover of an old blues song by uh, Sunhouse. And this is the which, pointers to. Yeah. By the way, the white, the white stripes have covered that song several times in concert. Yeah, great song. Uh, yeah, slow burning blues. They make it sexy as hell. Those girls could sing, and they had the gospel harmonies. 
like just brilliantly uh, uh, arranged uh, vocals. I mean, again, you know, we we remember them as pop stars, but they were very serious musicians who had this eclecticism and this this uh, musical vocabulary where they could do these really adventurous uh, lefts and rights all Mm. on the same album from from song to song. You know, shaky flat blues. They only wrote two songs on this record uh, themselves. Wow. Yeah, uh, the rest of them are extrapolations or covers or uh, songs that were written for them. Uh, there, ob- there's, there is one Gamble and Huff song. You couldn't be black in 1974 and not have a Gamble and Huff song on your record. Yeah, right. I mean, it was just a law. I mean, it was it was a yeah. bylaw somewhere in, in the black music, <laughs> uh, the black music books. Uh, so you know, yeah, you, you had to you had to do that. Uh, so uh, this album is really a lark. Oh, and I forgot to mention, Elvis Presley covered "Fairy Tale," which oh. is the which is the country song. And yeah. the, con- the country song, it's as country as, as as a motherfucker. I mean, you would think in the first thirty seconds, it's the birds or Graham Parsons. So huh. you know, you've got the elect- you've got the lap steel. You know, you've got the you know you've got the the sway of all that. The guitars. And, you know, you've got uh, you've got all of that going on. And again, they go in and out. They do the really sexy blues numbers. They do the really rollicking ragtime blues. The uh, the, the title song, uh, That's a Plenty, which then uh, segues into an, an, another a, another song. It becomes a song suite, but it, it goes into another piece. that's called Surf It USA, you know, <laughs> which, you know, surf it as in, you know, just hooting and hollering and, you know, being yeah. being being a rascal. Uh, so, uh, these girls were horny. Uh, these girls were, uh, were bluesy. They were sad. They were, uh, very socially conscious and, uh, they got all of it onto this record. I recommend it to everyone. Uh, the pointer sisters came back on the, uh, on the radar because one of them, I believe it was Bonnie died, uh, late last year. Uh, again, these girls have had some hard scrabble lives because of uh, addiction and, and other uh, personal uh, problems. And so uh, it led to some, uh, a, a serious mu- musicological piece by NPR.org uh, that I uh, encourage people to, to go find, but it was just a, an examination of all of their influences and, and how they came together and how they were important because they did some protest stuff before this. They had, uh, an anthem with "Yes, we can can," uh, which mm. you know, guess guess who was inspired by that one? Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, we were talking about Mr. Obama or President yeah. Obama, right? Uh, so, and again, they, they they were talented singers, talented writers, talented arrangers. They had that vocabulary, and yes, the Pointer Sisters were legitimately country music stars in 1974 and 1975 this record captures that plus a whole lot more yeah the, this album is really, really yeah really eclectic i mean I, I i just breezed through it on youtube um yeah totally i mean a totally different group from the ones that did jump in 1984 <laughs> yeah no um, shit. yeah yeah but yeah it's it's not an album that I'll go back and listen to it, but I can sit back and admire because of how diverse it is and how eclectic it is and how, how they pull it off. They sound sincere doing every genre they can possibly do, you know? Yeah, and, and, and they do. And it's it's basically, it's almost like a uh, kaleidoscopic tour through up to that point, 20th century black music in all forms. 
Right. Uh, and and very and very reverent. Again, the highlights, uh, I would say, are fairy tale because it's a brilliant uh, pop song uh, disguised as a country song. But uh, grinning in your face uh, and then banging on the pipes. I love just because it's so silly. Uh, yeah. And yeah. then and salt peanuts, too. So, yeah. So, again, these uh, this this is uh, one of the great lost. We we actually did an uh, uh, an episode and I encourage everybody to go back and find it in our archives on 1974. Yeah, we made the case. 1974 did not suck. Uh, we talked a lot about how that was not only the dawn of disco, but that was one of the great years for black music ever because it was the young brothers and sisters that were coming mm. up that were redefining the game. Sure. And uh, we, I had to cut it for time, but uh, but we, I this is where I that's when I discovered this album and it blew me away. And I wish I had known about it sooner. It's brilliant. Go check it out. That's a plenty. It's on Spotify and it's on YouTube and uh, it's there for you. So okay. there's the vault, boys and girls. And now we have come to this. Maybe the episode itself is overrated, but we have come <laughs> to the end of this uh, album, uh, this wonderful trek through uh, 10 overrated albums, some of which we kind of like, others we really genuinely cannot stand. Yeah, and, and I would say most of them we can't stand. Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. Cherish by Cool and the Gang. Freedom by Wham. Don't Lose My Number by Phil Collins. Oh Sheila, Ready for the World. Those were the top five songs on the Billboard Hot 100 on September 27, 1985. Pretty good, right? Well, we will be revisiting uh, September 1985 on the next episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Oh, what a month. We hope you'll join us then. Uh, this is the podcast for you, O fellow traveler through rock nerdum. Stay rude, stay crude, stay sophisticated. In the meantime, visit us on Twitter at curmudgeonpod and hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.